Perfection is an inherently impossible goal, and it comes from a form of deficit, a form of lack. You can begin to see how downstream effects of perfectionism can be exhausting, can lead to mental health difficulties. I advocate in the final chapter of the book's universal basic income, because that just flips the purpose of work on its head. Rather than working for survival, now, our jobs become part of our identity, part of our vocation. So striving for purpose and meaning because our basic needs are underpinned in the not too distant future, we have to reconcile with this focus of more, bigger, better. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I was so excited about today's episode. It's about a very specific topic which really resonates with me, and that is the role of perfectionism. I definitely identify as a perfectionist, although after talking to Thomas in today's episode, it sort of redefined for me what a perfectionist actually is, and maybe I'm not a perfectionist. I will say this conversation was so fascinating. We talk about different types of perfectionism, the differences in work versus vocation the role of self-criticism and high standards. And this also may be my most political episode I've ever aired, which just goes to show how not political I am because it's not even that political in today's episode. But we really had a really nice, respectful conversation around things like capitalism and universal basic income. And I just really, truly enjoyed this conversation. I can't thank Thomas enough for his work and for his openness and everything that he's doing. Definitely check out his book, The Perfection Trap, and definitely Definitely let me know what you think of today's episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash perfectionism. Those show notes will have a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about. So definitely check that out. And there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just wanna break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, 
they are not one ingredient, there is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Thomas Curran. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. It is about a topic that backstory on today's conversation, it was one of those situations where I saw the pitch for the book and I was just, I only had to see a second of the title and I was an immediate yes. So I don't know about you guys, but I have personally for pretty much my whole life, as long as this would be a thing, identified as a perfectionist. I never really saw it. Well, I guess we can talk about that. I I feel like historically, I didn't see it as a negative. And then I probably started seeing it as a little bit draining and as a negative as far as like how intense I would get with focusing on things in life and the standards that I would hold for myself. More recently, it has felt less problematic because I feel like I've been able to let go of some of the negative tendencies of it. In any case, it's something that I really, really identify with. Like I use it to define myself. So when I saw the title of this book by Thomas Curran called The Perfection Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough, I was just like, yes, the psychology of perfectionism, please, please, please. And then reading Thomas's book was so fascinating, so eye-opening, Who knew? I mean, I clearly knew nothing about perfectionism. I had no idea that it was, well, A, so debated, B, that there were so many different potential manifestations of it and way it's been studied in the clinical literature, even though, as Thomas talks about in the book, it's been kind of existing in the world of quote, pop psychology for a while. But I learned so much about the potential different manifestations of it, what it means for me and for you guys. And also what it actually might mean for our world and the future 
and sustainability. Like there is a lot to tackle here. So I am here today with Thomas. I am so honored to be here with him. He is a professor of psychology at the London School of Economics, and he actually did a landmark study on perfectionism that I'm sure we'll talk about in today's show. And he has a TED Talk about it that he also talks about in the book. So Thomas, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. That was a wonderful introduction. I've been looking forward to this for so, so long. So many questions I have for you. But to start things off, a little bit about your personal story. You weave it in you know, with different parts of your life relating to the different aspects of perfectionism as you talk about it in the book. Did you always identify? Because when I was just saying this right now in the intro, I was trying to think. I was like, well, when did I first like identify as a perfectionist? So did you always identify as one? Did you have a moment of epiphany where you realized you, you were one? Did you have a moment where you realized it wasn't a potentially a good thing for your life? What was your history with that? Oh, goodness me. I was definitely a latecomer to perfectionism. But when I look back and reflect on my uh, so childhood and young adulthood, definitely there's a base, basic anxiety underneath a lot of my experiences. I worried a lot. As, as a kid, how I looked, what I had, whether I was, I was good enough. But I'm not sure whether those anxieties were channeled into perfectionism until later in life when I somehow found myself in a, I suppose, middle-class professional, educated professional role, <laughs> surrounded by high achievers. And suddenly that basic anxiety found its way into perfectionism and, and made me work really, really hard, but also contributed to a lot of mental health difficulties which I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss later but that was probably I would say the moment where I realized perfectionism was having a negative impact on my life where those anxieties that I grew up with started to take over pushing me into a lot of uncomfortable working habits working evenings weekends doing work on my PhD dissertation at Christmas and and finding myself just all consumed I suppose by work and and uh, all the rest of it. So I was definitely uh, a perfectionist, no doubt about that, but I definitely came to it later in life. So that actually leads to a huge question I have. I want to lay down the foundation before I ask it, but as a teaser, because it's so interesting hearing you say that, because like for me with my perfectionism, like I said, it's literally the way, I mean, it's just the way I felt for as long as I can remember. I don't remember being any other way. Like it very much felt like it came from within me. So like self-oriented perfectionism. So it's interesting to hear with you that it was partly that social environment that seemed to kind of like activate it or catalyze it. So like, do you identify more? And again, this is why it needed a foundational explanation because I'm using terms that we haven't defined yet. But like for you, was it more socially prescribed perfectionism? Yeah, definitely. My perfectionism is social in its root and also social in its expression too so i i would i would i would say that there's there's definitely a high level of self-oriented in there like self-driven perfection but it comes from outside so i've i felt a lot of social pressure to live up to really high expectations which i then put on myself to push myself really really hard and so it's it, it again as I said, I think there was a predisposition that I held when I was younger, but I think that, that that predisposition was waiting to be activated by the social world. And as soon as it was, it kind of exploded into some very, very unhealthy uh, perfectionistic behaviors. So definitely social, social self, and there's another type of perfection called overwhelming perfectionism. All these types of perfectionism, they don't operate independently. They all sort of bleed into each other and we're higher on one 
and a little bit maybe uh, not quite as high on another. But typically, if we're if we're perfectionistic, we we trend higher on most of them. Can you go through that, like the three? Because you talk in the book about, and what were their names, like Paul and Gord? Paul Hewitt and Gordon Flair are the two researchers who've done most of the heavy lifting in this area, although their ideas come from earlier theorizing by many psychoanalysts, but particularly a uh, psychoanalyst called Karen Horney. But over the over many, many years, they've I mean, they've just interviewed perfectionistic people really talk to them and ask them what perfectionism looks like and what's really interesting from their research is what most of us think of perfectionism as you know the quintessential overstriver the really hard worker who pushes themselves well beyond comfort now that's true perfectionistic people do do that and we see that time and time again but it's not the full picture so that's self-oriented perfectionism perfection that comes from within but they also were seeing time and time again perfectionistic people describe uh, a social kind or form of perfectionism where perfectionism is coming from the outside so not only do they impose high self-set standards on themselves but also they feel like other people are expecting perfection of them and this is called socially prescribed perfectionist this idea that other people expect me to be perfect and they're waiting to pounce when i've shown a weakness or made a mistake and not only do we see a social, socially prescribed perfectionism, we also see perfectionism turned on to other people too. So when you talk to perfectionistic people, you'll often see perfectionists not only have high standards for themselves, but also high standards for other people. So, you know, if I'm hauling myself over coals to reach excessive standards, then you're going to do that too, right? That's only fair. So this is called other-oriented perfectionism. And these are the three core elements of perfectionism. You see time and time again in perfectionistic people. Uh, they're the basis for the measurement of perfectionism, and they're also the basis for our work looking at whether perfectionism is increasing over time. The three of them, they're all about filling high standards. The self-oriented, that's coming from you, like your own your own desire to have these standards. The social is you feel like other people have these standards that you have to fulfill. And then the third one, the other, that's you putting your standards on other people. That's right. Yeah. All of them have a consistent rue, which is in a sense of deficit or a feeling of not being enough, but they are just triggered and manifest slightly differently depending on the dominant form of perfectionism at play. So if you're a highly self-oriented perfectionist, then you're going to feel a lot of self-criticism. You're going to put a lot of self-imposed pressure on yourself. If you're a socially prescribed perfectionist, you're going to experience a lot of those things too, but you're also going to feel a lot of social judgment. You're going to feel like people are watching you all the time and you're going to feel you need to please others, right? So there's a sense that I need validation from other people to to really prop up my own self-esteem. And then other oriented is really where it kind of what Freud would call projection. So this idea that you know, I'm projecting my high standards onto you because I expect you, I expect myself to be perfect. So you're going to need to be perfect too. So these different types of perfectionism all have that same root of feeling like we're not enough, but they're just expressed slightly differently depending on which one's dominant. So, cause you mentioned just now, like the negative effects and, and this idea of not feeling enough. How do you feel about people who categorize perfectionism rather than like these three versions instead into like a binary, like good versus bad perfectionism because you mentioned some of that dualistic categorizations in the book and then last night I was just randomly like googling studies and different studies would like call it different things but a lot of them would put it into basically two types like a, a more negative perfectionism and then like a more positive perfectionism so how do you feel about that sort of categorization of it 
this is a heated debate still going on in, in the academic literature. So, so my perspective on this shouldn't be taken as gospel. However, from what I understand about perfectionism, from the many years I've done this work and from my own experiences with, with perfectionism, I've come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as positive or healthy or adaptive perfectionism. These are kind of the terms that you'll see time and time again. Yeah, perfection is, is an inherently impossible goal. And it comes from a form of deficit, a form of lack. So that when we failed and made mistakes or shown vulnerability, which we do all the time, that has a massive impact on our self-esteem, which plummets. We go in on ourselves, we're very critical, and ultimately it creates a lot of mental health difficulties that we see time and time again in the literature. And even when we succeed, on the flip side, let's say we do something well, there's no lasting satisfaction that comes from those accomplishments because perfectionism will keep us pushing for more, keep us overcompensating for what we lack. The better we do, the better we feel like we're expected to do. And so it's, it's an unwinnable game. There's no joy in the wins and there's intense amounts of self-criticism and self-loathing when we fall short. And so as a consequence, I don't think we can make a case that perfectionism is in any way positive or adaptive. And I think what we're seeing in positive and adaptive perfectionism is perhaps slightly different to what perfectionism's essence is. I think what we're seeing there is conscientiousness, meticulousness, diligence, and these things are very good things to possess, but, but they don't come with the insecurity that comes with perfectionism. Perfectionism is really insecurity fused with high standards, and high standards don't need to come with insecurity. And I think we have to make that distinction when we're debating whether perfectionism is positive or negative. One of the um, studies I was reading last night, it actually was talking about, I should actually find it. It mentioned that the terminology they were using. Let me just see, because I think I have it right here. Oh yeah, here it is. They were like dividing perfectionism into conscientiousness perfectionism, which you just mentioned, and self-evaluative perfectionism. They said that came from neuroticism, sort of similarities. And so I guess the question there is distinguishing conscientiousness and perfectionism. So, So when people are having these debates, do some people, when they're having these debates, not separate like conscientiousness and perfectionism. It's just, it's hard to like have the conversation when people are using different terminology and like different definitions, I guess. A hundred percent. I, and <laughs> I, I can't imagine what it's like for people who don't work in this area to come to and trying to figure out it's hard enough for those who do research in this area to work through it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's so many different terms and so many different perspectives. And this, by the way, this is a very healthy thing for science. It's good to have debates and it's good for people to come to different conclusions. Social science psychology as a social science it is not a hard and fast this is not physics or biology where we can identify the etiology of things precisely we're dealing with abstract constructs here and so at a certain level we have to rely on abstract theories and ideas and yes perspectives and opinions to guide us in our understanding of the topic and as I, as I mentioned, my understanding of the topic comes from personal experience, but also many, many years working in the research, trying to figure out what on earth this thing is. And having done that process, I've come to the conclusion that I think we have to be very clear as researchers about what perfectionism is and differentiate it from similar characteristics. And there's no doubt, there's a lot of overlap between conscientiousness and perfectionism, no doubt about that. But there's also crucial differences. And it's the 
starting point. It's where those high conscientious, high standards come from that I think is important. And if you start from a place of deficit and lack, which is where perfectionism comes from, rather than a place of active and optimistic wanting to do more, you know, you know to improve, to grow, which is conscientiousness. I think we, if, we, if we can get the starting point right, then you can begin to see how downstream effects of perfectionism can be exhausting, can lead to mental health difficulties, can be unsustainable ways of striving, whereas conscientiousness, growth mindset, and all those, I guess you might call them positive things, because they come from a very active and optimistic place of wanting to grow, well, their downstream effects are likely to be much more positive, much more adaptive, lead to much more long-term and sustainable forms of striving. Like I took a, a personality test sort of recently, and it was for the the main... I should know this better. The main personality traits like conscientiousness, extroversion, introversion, neuroticism, like all of those things. And I was 100% in conscientiousness, which makes sense given my perfectionism identification. Could you be conscientious and not be trying to achieve perfect standards? I'm just trying to like get a better picture of this. And like, here's a thought experiment, not to throw two questions at you. Because I think when we're talking about perfectionism, we're thinking about like work, like doing things perfectly and things like that. But that idea of doing something to 100% is that idea of perfectionism. So like an analogy would be like, I want to be a kind person. Shouldn't I aim to be perfectly kind? Like, shouldn't otherwise, what do I aim for? That I'm going to be 97% kind? And like, does that make me a perfectionist? It's it's a recognition though. Perfectionism, perfectionists are singularly unable to recognize that life is messy, that we are imperfect people and we live on an imperfect planet and we're going to make mistakes because we're fallible. We're going to slow down and feel sometimes like things are too much because we're exhaustible. And occasionally there's going to be times where we just screw up. And there was nothing to learn, nothing we could have done. It was just simply having a bad day or we, we simply just took our eye off the ball for that second that we made a mistake. These are things that are part and parcel of being human. And perfectionism and the perfectionistic mindset makes being human almost the, the hardest thing to accept. Whereas conscientiousness is is different. It's about, it's, it's about trying to do our level best. It's about putting in effort to and being meticulous to try to master things conscientiousness is almost like having a vocation your life's purpose is to try to master a task my grandfather was a carpenter i reflect a lot of his experience in the book because he was a very conscientious person but he wasn't a perfectionist he, he could leave his things in the world for other people to use and he could go home and not worry about it and if somebody gave him a bad review or you know he would just made a mistake on a job these weren't catastrophic things in his life but perfectionistic people are unable to have that kind of stillness and that acceptance because they are fighting against their imperfect humanity all the time trying to conceal hide those things that deep down we know are imperfect about us and that's i think that has that is the crucial distinction between somebody who's perfectionistic and somebody that holds high standards or, or maybe conscientious and it's it's really conscientiousness fused with insecurity which is perfectionism um but conscientiousness on its own is, is an eminently positive thing so if a person were trying to achieve quote perfect standards but they are okay not meeting them they don't have anxiety about it they don't feel hard on themselves that type of manifestation would be 
conscientiousness, not perfectionism, if they're not experiencing the negative effects. Yeah, let me let me give an example. Of, 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 we do many, many experiments in the lab. And one of the things we're really interested in is what, what happens when you put perfectionists in situations, situations of failure. And what you see time and time again is people who are lower on perfectionism, in particular self-oriented, but certainly socially prescribed perfectionism too. If you if you give them a task and you tell them they failed, no matter how well they did, you just say like you didn't you didn't quite reach the target or other people perform better than you, you see something really fascinating in terms of their emotional responses to that setback. Non-perfectionistic people or not very perfectionistic people, yeah, you know, of course, yeah, look, they've just tasted defeat. They're going to feel, you know, at some level disappointed in that. Their pride might fall a little bit. They might feel a little little bit of elevation in their guilt and shame, but it's fleeting. You know, it, it's not it, it's not lasting. They can come through that very, very quickly. They, in, in other words, they bounce back from that setback. However, people who are higher on perfectionism, every single time you do this, their pride plummets in themselves. Their shame in particular spikes really, really high, as does their guilt. And it stays like that for a long time it lingers inside them and that's the crucial difference perfectionism is really riven by insecurities worries doubts about other people seeing the what they consider to be their shameful interiors and the moment those interiors are revealed to the world the moment we hit a mistake or setback the internal dialogue is how could you be so stupid what were you thinking and that ruminative brooding mindset can go on for days weeks even months, depending on how big the mistake is. And and that's the crucial difference. And we see this time and time again in the lab. With the perfectionism and those experiences that you see in the lab. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... 
definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas, melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BC Melanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Are you also ranking the people on other potential mediators that could lead to that manifestation? Like they're anxiety independent of the perfectionism or like their emotional intelligence or their, I guess what I'm trying to get a sense of is how do we know the issues are coming from the perfectionism and it's not third party character traits about the people that makes issues manifest from the perfectionism? These are really good questions. And the answer is in a lot of the work that we do, you know, you can try and control for what we think are important variables in those lab situations, but you can't control for everything. We don't know the background of participants in intimate detail. We can't possibly measure every other potential third variable that could impact on the relationship between perfectionism and and self-conscious emotions. We try as hard as we can to make sure that the conditions are as controlled as possible so that what we see at the end can be as far as is uh, is within the bounds of of the design of the experiment is is perfectionism but you know you're absolutely right this is not just a, a legitimate question to be asked of our field it's a legitimate question to be asked of every field of psychology and and the extent to which we can say that x causes y has to be considered in the context of potential explanations having said all that there is now a huge body of literature in our field that finds time and time and time and time again very, very strong correlations between perfectionism and indicators of serious mental illness, things like anxiety, depression, self-harm, bulimia, image-related concerns, particularly body image concerns, self-conscious emotional responses to failure, which which is the research I've talked about. And so, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. This is true. But once many, many, many correlations tend in the same direction, we can we can say that something is is happening here that it's probably worth us paying attention to uh, when it comes to perfectionism and its problematic relationship. Which should we say with mental health? And it's a little bit difficult because we're again using the word perfectionism when earlier we said there were three different ones that we are going to define it as. So like in those studies and they, when they find those negative effects, which in the book, and by the way, friends, get the book because um, all the information and details and studies and everything is in there. So you, you'll get all the data. So in those studies, when they find those negative effects, how do they correlate to the three different types? And also, do they ever isolate the three different types and look for those effects? So like if there's a person who's just self-oriented do they have those effects? A person who's just socially, do they have those effects? Which I know the answer to that one. And if there's a person who's um, just other oriented, do they experience those effects? Yeah, this is this is what we do all the time. Although I would, I would caution, this is a this is kind of a problematic way of doing this kind of research because if you strip socially the the variance that's shared between social, let's say, social described and self oriented perfectionism, you just you just look at pure self oriented perfectionism then what you're doing is you're creating a bit of a straw man because there's no perfectionistic person that would only 100% associate with being a self-oriented perfectionist. As I mentioned earlier, these forms of perfectionism can bleed into each other. And yes, 
people tend higher on one relative to the other, but they've got positive correlations of each other, which means if you have one, you're likely to also have a little bit of another. However, that caveat said, we do do the work, we look at these in the independent effects of these forms of perfectionism. And what you see is socially prescribed perfectionism being the most extreme, the one that correlates most strongly with really quite serious mental health conditions and i think there's no surprise that's no surprise really if you've you know socially prescribed perfectionism is really about trying to please other people uh, hyper vigilance for other people's approval and validation and when we've screwed up or we make mistakes particularly publicly then the ruminative cognition the brooding that occurs the things that i've just mentioned in those experiments you know left unchecked that can create some really problematic mental health outcomes, particularly anxiety, particularly low mood, particularly depression and image-related concerns. Socially prescribed is very much uh, not something that we that we would like to see in, in people, particularly at high levels, because that, that can have some negative impact. Now, self-oriented is a bit more complicated because self-oriented can sometimes seem positive. Like, So you'll sometimes see positive relationships with self-esteem, positive emotions. You might see uh, negative relationships, small negative relationships with anxiety or depression. You know, So on the surface, when you look at socially prescribed perfections, uh, sorry, self-oriented without socially prescribed, it can seem ostensibly positive. But then when you look at the effects of self-oriented over time, you tend to see those relationships reverse. Now we start to see positive relationships, anxiety and depression over time. And then when you look at self-oriented perfectionism without taking out the impact of socially prescribed, you tend to see much weaker relationships with those positive outcomes, even in some cases, positive relationships with more negative outcomes. So self-oriented is a lot more complex, but nevertheless, when you study it over time, you tend to see some negative impacts come through. So socially prescribed is uniformly negative. It has massive negative impacts on mental health. And then over-oriented is a much less studied than the other two but where, what studies have been conducted have looked at over-intuitive in terms of relational outcomes. So how satisfied are you in your relationships, at work, in your personal relationships, with friends, et cetera, et cetera. And you see time and time again that over-oriented perfectionism correlates to things like interpersonal hostility, less satisfaction in romantic relationships, less satisfaction in professional relationships. And that can have an impact on things like loneliness and social connection. So that's what we know from the literature. I remember reading in the book, you were talking about how self-oriented perfectionism did correlate in a lot of studies to self-esteem and happiness, but then also that there are these other issues as well. It's interesting to hear the, the timeline, how you were saying that it typically gets worse, because I guess in my experience, although again, maybe I need to use different definitions or words, but like I said, in my experience, it was kind of like the timeline I gave earlier where... I always identified as this growing up, and then I feel like I did start experiencing negative traits. But then I feel like as I grew, like worked on myself and like matured and maybe became more emotionally mature as well, I feel like it was like been the opposite timeline that you gave in that I've been able to identify the issues and work on them. So it's interesting that it's more common to go the other way, that people tend to get worse with it. Well, it's interesting because it's very important to say that these effects are only when these tendencies are left unchecked. And, you know, from my own experience, it's the same 
as yours in some ways, but it took me, you know, it took me to a mental health breakdown to realize. So there's kind of a curvilinear relationship, I think, that, that we might see in, in particularly people with really high self-oriented perfectionism, where in the initial stage is, is a sense that we need this. It has to be like this and we have to push ourselves really, really hard. And, and I suppose tolerate the mental health difficulties that come with it. But it's only when we get to a certain point where we can't keep going and things feel like they're coming down where we have to take a, t a minute to reflect and when we do that we begin to see that actually the way we're doing things is unsustainable it's putting a great deal of pressure on ourselves it's making us feel miserable and all, all the rest of it and then you turn the corner certainly my story but if you don't get on top of it then self-oriented perfection can run away with you so many questions for you <laughs> the role of culture and environment so because it seems like some, okay, like socially oriented perfectionism, for example, if you're just looking at it really casually and externally, it would seem that certain jobs and positions might encourage it more. It would seem like lower ranking jobs would make people more socially prescribed because there's an external pressure literally forcing them into you know, having to be a certain thing compared to higher ranking where maybe they have more independence. So maybe that's not as much of a factor. That's what it would seem like on the outside. But then I'm wondering if maybe that doesn't relate at all. And it's literally your internal perspective of what people think of you regardless of status. And then I know in the book, you talk about how the stress can actually be worse for people who are more quote affluent. What is the role of somebody's actual job and the society and culture they're living in? Absolutely. I, look, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to take a slightly different lens to this issue. A lot of the things that have been written in the past about perfectionism are very individual focus, which is fine. But that's not the complete story. I mean, my, my research rose to, rose to prominence on the back of research that showed perfectionism rising for everybody. And so, you know, that's not an individual defect or something that's going wrong within individuals, but it tells us that something is happening in broader society that's 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 making or, or pushing people to endorse these tendencies to a greater degree. And in particular, socially prescribed perfectionism. That's the one that's rising really, really fast among young people. So I think we have to zoom out a little bit. Of course, there are individual differences that people possess that mean they're more predisposed to perfectionistic tendencies than others, and we shouldn't discount them. And of course, there are early life experiences, things like abuse and neglect, which are also important to this perfectionism story. Absolutely. However, in the aggregate, I think what we're also seeing is something significant that isn't talked about as much and that's that society is becoming more pressurized society is projecting perfect ideals into the world through things like social media excessive pressures in schools and colleges the workplace as, as you've mentioned they're becoming extremely pressurized and and requiring excessive levels of work ethic and pushing and, and all the rest of it to succeed and then of course you know you've got changing parenting practices and the proliferation of digital media not just social media but also tv documentaries billboards all these sort of forms of uh, advertising that together conspire to create a society and a culture that kind of idolizes perfectionism that pushes us to set ourselves excessive expectations and ideals and i think the reason why i make the point in the book that this is this is something that perhaps 
is is coming for more affluent communities in it to a great degree is that the those are the communities where these standards and expectations are really intense and really fierce and you see that in you know schools colleges but you also see that in the workplace too so i don't think this the perfectionism spares anyone but i do think it's a particular problem for those on the upper end of the social hierarchy it's crazy timing because while I was reading your book, the other show I was prepping, do you know the work of Dr. Loretta Bruning by chance? I don't. She's done a lot on well psychology, but in particular, how our like quote happy hormones like dopamine and endorphins, serotonin, oxytocin, how they work and how we relate to the animal kingdom. So basically how these manifest in animals versus us and evolution and all that. She has so many books and her most recent book is called Why You're Unhappy. I think it's the subtitle is something about politics and biology. Her thesis, the reason I'm talking about it, her thesis is basically the polar opposite of yours. So it was so interesting to be reading your book and her book at the same time because the argument she makes is that we blame society for our unhappiness or our mental health issues, but really it's like the way we are, like we're made to be driven by these dopamine drips and we're made to be unhappy when it drips. And then we're made to be happy when we get the boost. And like, that's the way it is in animals too. And that's the way it is in hierarchies with serotonin. And that was like a long winded intro to saying, how do you feel about people who say that this is just blaming society for, our own issues that would be there regardless and like were these issues like when did perfectionism start appearing historically like is it i know you said it's increasing but did it not exist in the past well i, I mean i haven't read the work so i would have to you don't have to respond to her specifically i'd have to read it in more, de- more detail i mean look there are many people that would say you know this is completely individual and we can just think ourselves happy i mean look <laughs> I come from a a working class background. I grew up around poverty. There is a lot of that that comes into my thinking. I think if you grew up in those situations, you realize that, you know, we can, we can say that it's up to individuals to pull themselves out of situations that they're in, but sometimes the situations are so dire that it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost impossible. You know, I grew up with friends who had terrible, terrible situations that, you know, that I could not say that I would be able to have overcome them. You know, we're talking here, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, absent parental figures. You know, these are really tough social circumstances that that I think when we say it's just the individual and it's up to you to overcome these hurdles or issues of neglect and abuse, I think that's, I, I, I think that, that sometimes that misses an important an important part of every every human experience and that's kind of this idea that you know by, by the grace of god go i some sometimes we get lucky and we are able to reach the top and be in positions where we have you know some kind of say or we don't and i think it's important for, for me as as somebody who's come from that background to reflect on 
you know, this isn't just about individual experience. It's also, also a complex interaction between our circumstances, luck, happenstance, who we interact with, where we come, what, you know, happen to come through the education system at the right time. There are all sorts of many, many factors that impact on our success, our health and our happiness. And to put it all on the individual, I think it's disingenuous. Now that's just, that's just my opinion coming from personal experience. I haven't read this person's work. So the, I'm sure that there is a strong evolutionary case to suggest that there are there are certainly natural impulses for, for people to feel like we lack something, that we need to do more, that we need to work harder and the rest of it. And I'm, I, I can certainly have that debate. But when it, you know, when it comes to what we know about society, the inequalities that are present in society, and having experienced that myself, it's really difficult for me to fall down totally on the individual case. Now, my argument is, and this is the same argument as psychoanalysts going back decades, so this goes to the history part of your question. Perfectionism isn't a new phenomenon. It's not something that has just emerged in the last 20 years. Many, many philosophers, psychoanalysts, sociologists, anthropologists have observed in all sorts of different places and cultures. And I'm very much guided by the seminal work of someone called Karen Horney, who essentially observed time and time again in patients that were seeing her back in the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s when she was practicing, a consistent tension, a consistent neurosis, particularly in, in women, who was born of something called internal conflict, conflict between uh, the person we actually are, you know, the imperfect, exhaustible, fallible person we actually are and the person society tells us we should be. And of course, that those pressures and those conflicts were particularly heavy on women who were expected to hold, you know, I, ideals that were completely out of line with uh, what un, unrealistic. And over time, she saw this time and time again, this internal to conflict time and time again, that she came to the conclusion that these were cultural neuroses, right? These are cultural tensions, tensions that were placed upon us by living in a society that makes us bend ourselves to the whim of societal norms. And as a consequence, a lot of the neurosis that she saw and a lot of the perfection that she saw came from trying to bridge the gap between the imperfect person we are and the perfect person we're told we should be. And that was the tension that was at the root of a lot of psychological difficulty. And and I think if we take Karen Horney's ideas of that inner conflict to the present day, it makes a lot of sense that what we're seeing here is a disconnect between what we feel we should be in this society, this kind of I, the idealized version of who we should be and the imperfect person we are. And that's creating a lot of difficulty, a lot of tension, particularly on young people who are finding it much more difficult in today's society to live up to the ideal of, of the ideal person who they've told they should be in social media advertising or even their parents. It's, it's really, it's, and, and for me that, that really is the, is, is just as important part of the conversation as any individual impulse or evolutionary take on, on why it is we, we feel unhappy. And with Karen Horney's work, and that idea of, you know, it being these cultural, like, uh, manifestations that we need to achieve. How far back in culture, like, when did she think that first started? Well, uh, Karen Horney was a neo-Freudian, so she she wrote a lot about, uh, a lot of critiques of Freud, Freudian psychology. 
Because she said that, you know, these biological drives that Freud described, uh, you know, confined, confined to the people that he was working with, i.e., you know, Euro- Northern Europeans. And, and that actually they may not exist in people from other cultures and other societies, which is, which is what she, which was, which is what got her thinking about how a lot of mental health difficulties and neuroses are not just, you know, individually predetermined, that's to say, that come from, basic anxieties that we're born with but also cultural pressures and so you know she was really dealing with a lot of the issues that 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 freud was raising and you can you know you can go back to the turn of the the century and then you can go back even further looking at how you know philosophers and poets and people in popular literature talked about perfectionism back through the years i mean i start my book with a a tale about two gothic writers Hawthorne and Poe talked, who wrote really, you know, vividly about the dangers of living life, trying to emulate perfectionistic ideals, and how the, how ultimately that can lead to a very empty and unfulfilling life. So, you know, and you, you, know, you go back to the to the, the philosophers of Aristotle and all the rest of it that also dealt with issues about perfection and and divinity. And I think you know. You, you, you can you can it, it doesn't matter how far back you go there were people dealing with these issues around perfection the attainability of perfection and the and how healthy it is to strive for perfection but my book is really about what's going on in the last 20 years which i think have created what we're seeing in the data this rise of socially prescribed perfectionism and that's where most of my ideas i suppose experiences opinions and researchers as centered but yeah i mean look this isn't a new this isn't a new phenomenon hi friends okay so i'm a little bit embarrassed because i've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy which is so so important however i kind of left out something really important about light so as you guys know i've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long and at the same time during the day i was using a bright sad light So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
It's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. The reason I was thinking about the history of it is I was wondering if there were cultures historically where this didn't manifest at all because the culture just didn't create a culture that would encourage it. And the crazy thought I had from that, although, for example, and I know like like you just said, your book is focusing on now, um, I'm just trying to create or just think about ideas here. So like, do we think that there's perfectionism in cultures that we idealize that we idealize as being free from the woes of modern society and humanity. So like we'll idealize the Native American culture or indigenous tribes or hunter gatherers. Like do we think there's perfectionism in those types of situations? And this leads to a different question I have. I don't know is the answer. What would say is this we are living developed economies that have at some level, risen to a level of development on the back of uh, scarcity. That's to say, we've we figured out how to create surplus value. And that has driven huge, huge strides in economic development. It's in the wealthy world, uh, in developed countries, we have, it's a remarkable achievement of capitalism. There's no doubt about that. We've accumulated vast, vast amounts of capitalism, capital way more than even the, you know, the early pioneers could have ever imagined. It, it's a vast success story. And I suppose what we're talking about in the developed world is elements of degree, you know, degree of scarcity, how much scarcity is necessary to, to, to drive enough economic activity to meet the basic needs of people. The Scandinavian countries take a very different approach to the 
Anglo countries, they both have market-based societies, they both operate a capitalist economy, but they don't do it in the same way. And and so what you tend to you know tend to see in America is it's kind of full voltage capitalism, no government, and everything is about economic growth. Whereas the Scandinavian countries and some European countries say, yeah, you know, the market is important, growth is important, but at the same time, it shouldn't come at the expense of human needs. And there are trade offs, and and it's important that we have social protections, and it's important that we recognise that growth that we accumulate is reasonably shared so that most people can enjoy the prosperity that comes from it. Those are two different degrees of focus on growth more, bigger, better, that mean we're going to see a lot more perfectionistic tendencies in those where capitalism is on hyperdrive versus those where there is a fire blanket put around the excesses of capitalism that creates protections for people so that perfectionism isn't as necessary in those societies. And, you know, this is just the developed world we live in. And so that's where my thinking is oriented because those are the societies that we must live in. Now, whether, you know, it's the same going back (laughs) uh, hundreds of thousands of years, I would argue probably not. If you look at the, you know, you look at the map of GDP, it starts to just spike around the industrial revolution, which means for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, we lived in agrarian societies where sustainability was, was the focus. You know, there wasn't, we weren't chasing surplus value. We were, we were creating communities to survive that were self-sufficient. You know, and I would argue, and I have no data for this because there is no possible way to declare there, but I would argue you will not see <laughs> neuroses about whether we're good enough in those societies. Worries about whether we're doing enough or having enough or being enough. You know, these societies round on the premise that, you know, if we have enough, then that's plenty. And I'm not sure we'd see these excessive levels of perfectionism in those societies. But what I do know is that we do see a lot of perfectionism in modern societies, but we're talking about degrees. Some societies you'll see more of it, some societies you'll see less of it and it depends on it depends on where you are and i don't know if that answers your question but that's the way i see this problem no it does and um the crazy question i had from it which is not about just perfectionism per se but it just got me thinking cuz what i was trying to get to was you know are there societies where this perfectionism concept doesn't even really exist because of the culture and then i was just thinking in general does that mean there are other potential, and I don't know if you would qualify perfectionism as a personality trait, but are there other personality traits that we literally don't have a concept of right now that could exist if society was a certain different way, which like kind of blows my mind? Or have we experienced the entire potential mosaic of personality traits that there can be? Or are there ones that we have no idea about because we just don't live in that society? It's a really good question. I don't know. Again, I don't know. It's a great question. Something I've, I've never really thought about too deeply. You know, there's so much we know about human human behavior and psychology, but there's also so much we don't know. And I think it's really important to recognize that psychologists, neurologists, anthropologists, sociologists, you know, all we have is a set of theories and ideas about how we think human psychology works. We could be wrong. We could be right. All we can do is do the research, present the data, make our arguments, and then move on to the next study. That's how science works. And what happens in the future is unknown. And I think that's important for listeners to recognize, actually. You know, I think we can take a lot of social science at face value 
and we can read these wonderful books, so many wonderful books, and think that's the answer. But I think as as you're doing in in this interview, I think we should all engage with a, a bit of healthy skepticism and ask probing questions because it's really, really important if we want to get to the nub of these issues. And, and people bring all sorts of experiences, biases to their work. No different for me. I wear them on my sleeve, which I suppose maybe is different to other researchers in the area. I'm very upfront about my experiences and how they shape the way I see the world. I'd say that's less true for other books and work in this area. But nevertheless, I do think it's important that we do maintain a healthy degree of skepticism. And what we know today might be very different to what we know in the future. Your question is one I can't answer, but I think it's a good one. And I think it is a good one to reflect. Well, that perspective you have is overwhelmingly refreshing and well, it's ironic to say you're the perfect guest for this show, but that's like the mindset that I just am so thankful to engage with, with people because I just think it's so important. And so you do talk a lot, you talked about it now and you talk about in the book a lot about this, you know, capitalism, a supply side economy focused on growth, you know, reliance on credit and debt. Have there been studies? You also mentioned very briefly, you dropped in the word vocation, you know, versus job. Is having, I'm meandering all over the place, this economy that we're in now, like you were saying, it does create this constant focus on work and, you know, having to be productive and working all the time. And this is the bias I'm coming from, because this is all coming from my bias as well. Like, I love working. Like, it's like my favorite thing. So like when you were proposing in the book, you know, this idea of reduced workload or hours, I was like, no, I love working. So my question is, does it matter or are there studies on perfectionism? Because I know you talk a lot about studies about perfectionism and and work and the negative interplay there and, and the negative effects of working too much. What about people who enjoy working or people who, if you identify as a vocation rather than a job, is that kind of like opting out of the society narrative about work? And then do you not potentially experience as much of the effects. What are your thoughts on working, jobs versus vocations, and loving work? You know what, like, again, it's a really good question. I'm not advocating, you know, a standard, everybody must now work 20 hours rather than 40. I think if you if you find work enjoyable, fulfilling, and it gives you purpose and meaning, then you should work as much as you want to work. Uh, again, you know, I'm kind of, this is my bias, but I come from a working class community where work isn't like that. You know, work is to make ends meet. Work is to put food on the table. And there's not enough of it. And there's not <laughs> to, to do those things increasingly. And so, you know, when we talk about work, when I talk about work and reflect on work, you know, I reflect on my parents who were doing three, four jobs just to put food on our tables when we were younger and still struggling. You know, there wasn't any purpose or meaning beyond survival. And and then we have to so we have to be also really careful about that, that it isn't just the sort of middle class jobs that we enjoy where you know i'm talking about here i'm talking about you know jobs for 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 people who are working themselves to the bone and still not finding that their ends make meet and that's that's just as important for us to recognize that work uh, when we work for survival is very different to what it should be it should be about purpose and meaning it should be about fulfillment and that's why i advocate in the final chapter of the book something called universal basic income because that just flips the purpose of work on its head rather than working for survival now, our jobs become part of our identity, part of our vocation. 
because we don't have the the sword of scarcity hanging over us that we can push ourselves into areas where of work that we find we we have impact on the world whether that be in caring for other people whether that be creating things for people to use whether that be <laughs> repairing people's piping or roofs or whatever the you know this this is work now is unleashed because it gives us a sense of purpose and meaning and vocation and that goes hand in hand with this idea of working less because what we're having now is going to be an era of ai which is going to be complete disruption complete disruption is going to take away millions of white collar jobs and we have to we have to reckon with that like you know how are we going to use these the productivity gains that come from ai in a way that doesn't completely put millions and millions of people into poverty well the way that we do it is through universal basic income again which is why i think it's such a great great idea but also it's about okay this is going to take away work that's drudgerous that's very difficult or arduous and it's going to unleash us to do other creative things and if we can take ai and uh, and it allows us to use our work in creative and innovative ways then again that's a very very positive thing and if or if we can use it to work less and spend more time in our families and with our communities that's also a really really positive thing i suppose what i'm saying is we have an economy that's huge we have a lot of affluence and we've got a lot of growth to come particularly with the advent of ai and i just think we have to think smartly and cleverly about how we use that and if people want to work really really hard that's up to them great but that doesn't mean that we have to do those things because we have the technologies and the and the policies that are available to allow us not to and and if that means that we become happier we live more fulfilling and contented lives particularly for people at the bottom then i think it's an eminently positive thing and by the way it will also mean that we won't need perfectionism just to get by we'll be driven by purpose and fulfillment instead look you know this sounds utopian but the tools are there and they're being developed it's just whether we use them to enrich the lives of people or whether we use them to enrich uh, shareholder value and that's a choice we have to make so in that hypothetical situation because you just said how perfectionism, we would be driven by purpose and fulfillment instead. So do you think that that situation of universal basic income would equally affect the three, the three types? So for self-oriented, so people who have these internal standards of not feeling like they are enough, how does that external situation of universal basic income affect that core belief? Less so than the social, absolutely. But the, the the real issue that we're dealing with is the social because that's the one that's exploding. And I, and I think that's the one we need to pay attention to. You know, perfectionism at root comes from a sense of not being enough, of lacking in some way. And that has been the engine of economic activity in the capitalist era. You know, scarcity is what's created to drive economic progress. And I'm saying that we've reached the point in our economic development where we don't have to... St- continue to do that where we can switch to a different way of driving innovation instead focusing less on growth 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 at all costs and and more on human indicators of progress uh, whether we're happier healthier whether we're li- living longer lives and all the rest of it and part of that equation i think is uh, universal basic income because it, as i said it flips our uh, a reason for <laughs> for living in society on its head from survival striving to striving for purpose and meaning because our basic needs are underpinned by a universal basic which by the way is universal right everybody gets it it's not doesn't discriminate and it frees us 
you know, and it, you know, this is why, by the way, it's advocated not just by people who come from the left, but also people who come from the right, because they realise that it really is has tremendous potential to drive incredible innovation and economic growth. So, so I think again, it's really about perfectionism for me comes from living in a society in in a society where we're told all the time that we're not enough that we have to continually do more right that's what feeds those perfectionistic neuroses that feed the need to keep moving forward to keep driving to keep pushing us as well beyond comfort and a lot of that is socially prescribed and i'm saying okay how can we how can we how can we take a slightly different approach to what drives people and instead of driving them from below through you know this idea of you know scarcity driving people forward how can we take a different approach that that eradicates that scarcity and and frees us to pursue purpose and meaning instead is there the potential because people have made the argument that a reason we have these mental health issues in general and more chronic stress and i don't know if specifically they talked about perfectionism, but I would include that in it as well, is because, because we're not as having to focus on our basic needs as much, it frees up time to stress about other things. So like basically if you're literally, you know, if you're like a hunter-gatherer, <laughs> you, you have to like find your food. So like that's your focus. Like you don't have time to stress about these other things. So is there potential that that situation could actually have the opposite effect where by taking care of our basic needs, now we just have time to stress about other things? It depends what, what the focus is, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm saying in the book that for these things to work, we also need a radical shift in perspective. And that, by the way, that's very, that is the utopian part of the book, i.e. that we've, we've recognized that wanting, needing, craving, yearning for more is a kind of fleeting and very meaningless conditions that you know that that bring a lot of unhappiness chronic unhappiness and so if all you do by implementing something like universal basic income is is implement a, a floor under poverty and do nothing else in society in terms of you know radical perspective shift then of course you know it may be the case that what you've described there is likely to happen but the shifts that i'm describing I, I, I think come at the same time as us recognizing that we're in a new, a completely new phase of economic development where essentially, you know, we have a size of an economic pie where, where most of, of human needs can be met if, this, if that pie is reasonably shared. The reason they're not, the reason we still see incredible poverty, massive mental health difficulties, drug addiction, high levels of incarceration and all the things that we associate actually with poorer countries is 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 because the 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 economic pie is not reasonably shared and we have a we have a very lopsided society where the proceeds of growth go overwhelmingly to a very small portion of of, of people so this you know these changes don't just come in independent of each other the reason why i've tried to describe a whole perspective shift and a number of policies around that not just one is that all of these things really need to occur hand in hand for us to be able to live in a society where perfectionism wasn't required and as as i mentioned the starting point for that wouldn't wouldn't just be this one policy ubi but it'd be all sorts of other policies including reductions in inequality being more growth agnostic about and being far more focused on human and social progress. Those things, I think, are major perspective shifts and priority shifts that also need to go hand in hand with UBI for it to be effective. 
I know you literally just said they have to go hand in hand. Like, do you think a paradigm shift could lead to that situation in the economy? And, or if that happened in the economy, could it lead to the paradigm shift or do they literally, they literally have to happen at the same time? There's going to be a point in time, I think, in the not too distant future, certainly when my kids are a bit older, where we are going to have to reckon with these issues because not 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 because of because we're shooting past human thresholds that are creating a lot of anxiety, stress, and perfectionism, but because we've breached some turning point in the climate. That means we have to we have to reconcile with this focus of more, bigger, better. We would have to because something is going to happen that's going to displace millions of billions of people which are going to create all sorts of difficulties for for the developed world and I, and so I, there's a sense that there is something coming down the line at some point where we will have to rethink our emphasis and our focus until then i i don't i am not necessarily overly optimistic that we are going to see significant change but i think there is hope and the hope is that we recognize in time that we do need to think differently about what's important and whether it's whether human and social progress is at least as important if not more important than economic growth where we do realize that you know more doesn't always equal better where it's it's really important to get on top of inequality because it's creating a drag on not just you know productivity but also health and happiness where through things like ubi where we do have to take ai which by the way is such an important Innovation has so much potential to be extremely life-enhancing, but we have to make sure that the productivity gains, again, are shared. All of these things, I think, are coming down the pipeline. All of these, as I mentioned, and all of these things can be extremely positive, but it's it's up to us, I suppose, as a, a society to decide that we're going to use them to enhance our lives. And we're going to, rather than follow the path that we followed for the last 20 years, which is to try to make as much profit on the back of these things as, as, as we possibly can, whether we can actually work out how we can share the gains and so that's you know that's my big picture and this is why in the final chapter i tried to wrestle with you know how what would a society where those things have changed look like by the way it's not a manifesto it's not a prescription i don't you know i don't purport that any of these things should happen or could happen i just say that let's th- think as a reader i want readers to think about what would happen if any of these things were to materialize as a way of trying to i suppose cement the idea that perfectionism is just as much a social socially conditioned characteristic as it is a innate or personal uh, driven characteristic because if we lived in a different society which had different emphasis then we wouldn't need as much perfectionism just to get by hi friends an incredible fasting aid is coffee yes i am all about the coffee i am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning and i have a big announcement the brand of coffee that i have been drinking for an entire decade now i am no longer drinking There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Yeah, the thing I'm most curious about in the thought experiment, because actually the idea of universal basic income doesn't feel as utopian to me as the psychology side of things, which, and this is coming from my biases and perspectives and everything, but I identify as happy. Like I feel like I'm a glass half full. Like I identify as an optimist. I I feel very happy, but I think one of the reasons I feel that way is because I don't expect to always feel happy. So like if I'm not happy, that doesn't really bother me. I'm because I know that it's just kind of like a going back earlier with the different neurochemicals. I know it's like a roller coaster of dopamine drips. And so it's not meant to last in a way. It's supposed to be like temporary moments and then and then the next one and then the next one. And then I don't feel bad about that. Like, well, I do feel bad about that because I feel like society says I should feel bad about that. Let me clarify. <laughs> I feel like society right now says that we are seeking happiness in our goals and then they don't last and so we're never going to find happiness because we always need to just chase the next thing. However, but if you understand that, then like what's wrong living that way? 
where you're just <laughs> you're just going from like happy thing to happy thing if you have like this broader picture. So what I'm thinking about in this situation that you're proposing is will people always be driven by the next thing and growth? Is that something that literally our brain can escape or evolve beyond or is that just the way our brain is? Yeah. I mean, there's, look, I have arguments all the time with people within my own department who evolutionary psychologists who believe this is just the way we're hardwired to grow and grow and grow and grow with no limits in perpetuity forever. Uh, you know, there's a very reasonable argument to suggest that that's the case with very di- various different sources of data. But again, at the same time, if it was an evolved tendency, then why is it only in the last minute period of the last sort of 200 years since the industrial revolution that we've seen this exponential growth and this push for more and more and more why do we see this earlier why has this only been a, you know when, when it comes to you know the entirety of humanity why has it only occurred in a speck of time and again you know the reason i to my mind the reason why this sense of needing to do more needing to have more needing to be bigger better is really sparked since since that time where where innovation was exploded, where scare you know where scarcity was manufactured into people's lives. You know, the, if you go back through the centuries where capitalism started, it was really about appropriating land, creating artificial scarcity so that the commoners had to work <laughs> for their subsistence. This is how capitalism began, and then of course there was the energy era, which it took a lot of, which meant that, you know, work that was done by many, many people could be done by one or two people, which freed up spare capacity to drive economic activity and forward. And this drive for more, bigger, better, and this exponential growth curve of growth began with the advent of capitalism, which, as I said, is in a very short speck of time when it comes to humanity. So, you know, is it is it something that's hardwired within us, or is this just something that's very uh, that's culturally conditioned as a function of living in capitalist societies? I lean on the latter explanation, but I don't. You know, I'm not someone who's dogmatic about these things. I'm not somebody who would say that my perspective, or the way that I read the literature or history, is the right way. I, I just come down on 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 that side of the argument. And as, as I write in the book, if you do come down on that side of the argument, then the solutions become different to what most people would think the solutions are, which is to say, we've got to work on this as individuals. I'm saying, yeah, of course, we've got to work on ourselves as individuals. Of course we do. But also, if we really want to reduce perfectionism at a societal level, then we're also going to have to look at uh, solutions at a societal level just as much as we are at an individual level, which is why I finished the book looking, taking a sort of broader lens and looking at how we can use a, a live slightly differently in, in an economy that doesn't need to grow at all costs. And, and, you know, that includes some of the measures that we've discussed. So, look, you know, this has been, a, you know, some of the questions that you've asked have been absolutely incredible. And this is the, this is exactly the sorts of debates that we should be having on these issues. I just take a slightly different perspective to most other people, but I think that's good. I think it's healthy to have different opinions. I'm so genuinely enjoying this. And to be completely honest, I don't typically engage in many conversations about the economy and things like that. And it's not because I don't care. It's because it's just not something I think about and it's not something I get. I think it would just bring like more stress into my life personally. So I just, I kind of like disengage, um, which kind of feels lazy. But what I was going to say about all of it is I'm so fascinated by this perfectionism concept. So it 
it really got me engaged in all of the discussion and the narrative. And so this was like the, what's the word, like a gateway drug that like got me into thinking about the economy stuff, which I really actually appreciate. And are there examples of countries who have made shifts in paradigms that have affected economic changes and, and how it relates to perfectionism or happiness? And what have we seen with that? Like, is it evidence that this might work? Well, we don't even have to look at different countries. You just have to look at within within our own countries, like America and Britain. It's not so long ago that we had a very different society, much more equal societies. This was kind of the post-war consensus of the New Deal in the US, where the economy looked really different. Society looked much, much different. Look, there were massive problems. Of course, there were. There's not take. There's no doubt about that. But as a, at a broad level, you know, you could raise a family on one income house, car, kids, no problem. There was opportunities. Economy was growing at a really healthy rate. So there was opportunities not just to get jobs, but also ascend within jobs and professions. And this was, by the way, encouraged. And this was kind of the Fordist idea. And and there was plenty of capacity, I suppose, for our parents' generation to really, if they worked hard, yeah, if they put the effort in to ascend social like this. This is the great, this was the affluent societies we're calling it, the burden of growing middle classes. We don't have to look at different countries to know that, you know, they could, you, couldn't, you can have different uh, approaches to how you manage an economy. That's changed, of course. Now we don't focus on the middle, we focus on the top and everything is geared towards enriching those at the top because we believe that the money will trickle down and the, si- the size of the pie is way more important than how it's distributed. And of course, you know, that's, created some extremely good outcomes for a small proportion of people but it's created stagnating living standards and and difficulties for uh, for for many others and and particularly young people so we don't just have to look across countries you can look within our own countries to see that there have been times where things are different and we've had different focus and emphases and as a consequence to my mind anyway you you would have found far less perfectionism in you know, in our parents' generation than we did in young people today. In fact, you know, I don't have any empirical evidence for that, but the way in which uh, baby boomers look at young people today with complete astonishment tells us that we're very different people and our characteristics have fundamentally shifted in ways that are really profound. So it isn't just about looking at different countries. You can, of course, look at different countries. You know, Scandinavian countries have a, a big welfare state. They have a lot less inequality and there's a, there's a massive safety net. So you can look at those countries. European countries follow a similar model. Even in Canada, if you go to Quebec, for example, you tend to see more social democracy in action. And as a consequence, that does have impacts on levels of perfection. Actually, that is one where we do have data, a lot lower levels of perfection in Quebec than anywhere else in Canada, the U.S., or the UK. So you know, it's not just about, you know, is there a system or is there a, is there a society where there's you know, perfection really low or no? There's no such society in the developed world where you'll see that. But as I mentioned earlier, it's all about levels and degrees. And you'll have some societies where perfectionism is less, less needed and other societies where it's really needed. And I think that's, that's the, I suppose, the crux of my book. That's what I'm trying to argue, that this is just as much a cultural phenomenon as, as, it, is, as it is a personal phenomenon. How do you think that realistically is going to continue to evolve and manifest the role of AI in all of this? And, you know, what if we end up in a ultimately like some sort of, you know, virtual reality, assuming we're not in one right now? I, I as I said, I think, I think AI, social media technology is such an, is such a powerful thing, particularly like in the green, green growth 
era you know where we do need we do need growth to be driven by things that don't extract and uh, cause a great deal of pollution you know the technology is at the forefront of that however you know you have to be a bit careful with it right because we want these things to be life enhancing we want them to meet human and social needs you know virtual reality social media these things can be really powerful at bringing people together around shared interests social support meeting people offline you know there's a a sense that these things tools can be really powerful in terms of human experience if they're used for those things if they're used for social comparison consumption and just to create a sort of aura scrambled reality into which targeted advertising thrives well that is not necessarily a healthy reason for the you know a tool for these a reason for these tools to be used so we just have to be careful about how they're used i think that's important it's not about throwing the baby out of the bathwater now when it comes to ai again it's it's such a positive development it can create so much economic activity and it's going to drive a lot of growth and it's going to take a lot of work away from us undoubtedly i mean that's already happening now the the question is what do we do with that work that's been taken away from us do we just use it to be to 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 free up that time to be given more work to do because that's one way we could use it are we going to use it to eradicate our jobs altogether in which case you know that's going to be really problematic in terms of demand in the economy or are we going to say okay these tools are really powerful almost too powerful and that we have to make sure that they're used responsibly and that we use them with a social conscience and that's to say that you know it's going to free up productivity so the you know so the those productivity gains should be shared right they should allow us to release us from work to do more work if we want to no problem with that but also to spend more times in our families and communities if we want to Right, I think there has to be some kind of democratic oversight of these technologies because if there isn't, we really are into a dystopian world. But if there is some democratic oversight of how these technologies are used, and as it can, just like social media, just like virtual reality, they can be very, very positive for human development and progress. But it, you know, as I say, we have to use them with a social conscience. Yeah, I think what will be so interesting to see. I was thinking about this actually yesterday because I was using chat GPT to write a contract and I was thinking about how like growing up before AI, you really had to create, you had to like create things yourself, like doing the research. And then if you're a perfectionist, you know, try to create this perfect thing compared to engaging with AI, for example, I'd like create this and then it just creates it as almost as perfectly as it can. But then I still have the tendency in me, like it gives me back what it gives me. And then I'm like, no, I need to, you know, make this better and perfect it. So I'll be really curious, like people growing up with that, you know, this basically instant button access to almost, if not perfect manifestations of what they're trying to create, how will that affect people's perfectionist tendencies? Will they become less because now they can just create the thing needed or will they become more because now they're just trying to make it better and better. I guess it goes back to like, I mean, so many things, nature versus nurture. There's a lot there. I'll be really curious to see what happens is my point. It's exciting. It's exciting. It is, it is exciting. And where have you landed today with your own? Cause you take readers in the book through your journey and I promise we're wrapping up. I want to be really respectful of your time. Where are you, especially after writing the book, did you have massive evolutionary shifts in your own perfectionistic tendencies how are you today it's a it's a journey (laughs) i mean i still i'm a perfectionistic person there's no doubt about that but the book has been really 
rehabilitating, I suppose, maybe is that a word? Rehabilitative? In some ways, in terms of perfectionism, because you can't really be a perfectionist and do something like write a book or make a documentary, do you know what I mean? Or or or, or start up a company, you know, the you, you have to at some point be willing to let it go. That's what the perfectionistic person really struggles with. And and so through the process of writing the book, it really has taught me a lot about what perfectionism is, but also what's important when it comes to overcoming perfectionism, which is basically letting it go. At some point, you have to accept that it's good enough and you have to put it out into the world and you have to, you know, we live in an information age. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. You know, someone's going to have their say and they're going to like it. They're not going to like it. And you're going to get good, bad feedback. And that's just the way it is. And, and, and I think your perfectionist will tell you, well, if you get really bad feedback, that's going to be catastrophic, right? Because that'll say something that's, that's uh, about, you know, your ability as a writer or an academic, but actually it's complete nonsense. Like that's not, that's not how it works at all. You put something out into the world, somebody doesn't like it and it's nowhere near as catastrophic as what you think it is. And that's the lesson that comes from letting things go into the world. And it doesn't have to be like a massive thing, like a book. You just be a presentation. <laughs> just putting your hand up doing a presentation at work and going through the anxiety that comes with maybe you know not being the most polished thing ever but nevertheless you did it and you put it out there and now you can learn and, and grow and develop and so that for me is a big it was the biggest lesson of, of the book was not just writing it which was hard enough but letting it go that's like taking a sledgehammer to perfectionism so i'm still have you know moments where my perfectionism takes over a little bit but i'm i'm able much more to reflect on the bigger picture and like you said earlier you know grow and become more aware of the problems with that kind of self-critical mindset and check myself every time i start to fall into it so yeah to any of your listeners you know perfectionism will hold you back way more than push you forward so don't listen to that inner voice get something done put it out there into the world and learn, grow, iterate through it. Those are the, that's the most important thing. Well, I love that so much. I am all about the letting go and I can definitely see it in my own journey with even like with this show, looking back on how I handled when I first launched it, like the first episodes compared to now. And I still love it and adore it the exact same and want to always improve it. But the amount of stress I had in the beginning about getting things perfect is just ridiculous. So, well, this has been so amazing. Your book was just fascinating, so eye-opening. Cannot recommend enough that listeners check it out. We'll put links to it in the show notes. Are you writing another book now? No, I'm not. I'm taking a bit of a break with a uh, uh, young child. Oh, is it a new, new well, not not that new. They're, they're a year old now, but oh, no, that's new. That's pretty new. <laughs> yeah, pretty new. So, um, I'm, I'm my next year or so. I'm going to focus on being present for my child, hopefully children, and then who knows? Yeah, like in the future, we'll see if there's another topic that I'm particularly interested in, and maybe I'll write another book. But for now, I think it's about enjoying life a little bit. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. The last question I ask every single guest on this show. And it's because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Now I'm definitely grateful for my son and my partner. I'm just wonderful parts of my life that I, I don't know what I would do without. So I would definitely say my family I'm, I'm, I'm most grateful for. But I'm also grateful to an incredible number of people that have helped me on my journey, in particular my PhD supervisor who's unwavering support is the reason i'm here uh, my mum for pushing me to go to university when i really didn't want to uh, so much so so much i'm grateful for but yeah i suppose if, if you want me to pick one thing it would be my family 
Well, I love that so much. And I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. Like I said, I was so, so excited by the topic. And then just so grateful for all of the research that you're doing and awareness you're spreading. And I'm really, really grateful, as you said, all throughout the show, this perspective you have about, you know, engaging with critical thinking about things and having discussions and debates and understanding our biases. And I, I just really appreciate that because goodness knows today in our world, it can be really hard to talk about things <laughs> with people. I and mean, I just think it's so important. So, um, Thank you for everything that you're doing. I, I'm going to eagerly follow your work. And if you uh, write another book in the future, I'd love to have you back on and talk about that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And this was honestly uh, such a lovely interview, some amazing questions, stuff that uh, I don't get asked often and has certainly made me introspect and think about uh, my own perspectives too. So this is a really nice interview. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, Thomas. You're the best. And enjoy, enjoy Canada. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.